Hello and welcome to another episode and another year with Conversations in Anthropology. We hope you, wherever you are, despite the ongoing calamities around the globe, were able to find small joys to celebrate during the holiday season. On that note, I bought a new bicycle and went for a ride. Mithily had a baby. Tim bought a house. David got married. And Cameo took a well-earned break. In this, our first episode of 2021, Cameo sat down, virtually of course, with Associate Professor of Anthropology at Tufts University, Alex Blanchett. Alex gained his PhD in anthropology from the University of Chicago, where he began his research into the politics of industrial labor and life in a post-industrial United States. His first book, which gets discussed at length throughout the conversation, is titled Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm. It is a brilliant and arresting ethnography of labor within some of the world's largest meat corporations, one that follows the making of the pig across every facet of its existence, from genetics to some 1,100 post-death commodities. He is also the co-editor of How Nature Works, Rethinking Labor on a Troubled Planet, co-edited with Sarah Besky and published by the University of New Mexico Press. Cameo is joined in this episode by guest co-host Katie Gressier. Katie is an Australian Research Council Fellow in the Anthropology and Sociology Discipline Group at the University of Western Australia. Her current research examines rare and heritage breed livestock conservation and agroecological farming in the climate change era. With a regional focus on Southern Africa and Australia, Katie has published on issues including the anthropology of food, human-animal relations, tourism, racial and national identities, and issues of health and illness. Her first book, At Home in the Okavango, explores emplacement and belonging among the white citizens of Northwest Botswana, while her second book, Illness, Identity and Taboo Among Australian Paleo Dieters, examines the body as a site through which neoliberal policies and practices are played out and and contested. Katie is an editorial board member of Anthropological Forum, a former University of Melbourne MacArthur Fellow, and has a PhD from the University of Western Australia. This is a fascinating conversation, one that dives deep into the work of animal agriculture in the US. And a warning, some of the descriptions of animal slaughter and what follows are quite graphic. If you're feeling a little squeamish today, perhaps revisit this episode another time. For those ready to take the plunge into the world of industrial farming, enjoy this absorbing conversation between Cameo, Katie Gressier, and Alex Blanchett. So welcome. I'm really thrilled today to be hosting this episode of Conversations in Anthropology with wonderful Katie Gressier at the University of Western Australia and with Alex Lanchette uh, at Tufts University. Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having us. So one of the questions that we traditionally start these podcasts with is about how you came to anthropology, but it just seems that there's so much going on in the world at the moment. Instead, I wanted to ask each of you why stay in anthropology? Might start with you, Alex. I mean, in some senses, the question of of how I came to anthropology and and why stay in anthropology is a little bit similar for me. This might just be a a reflection of my own um, experiences and privileges in the field, in the discipline. But I guess I don't know that many other fields that have more or less allowed me to do what I want. You know, I actually got into anthropology in a class in undergraduate on um, language and political economy, but one where we read a lot of Raymond Williams and Terry Eagleton and various theorists that aren't really anthropologists, um, but nonetheless, it struck me as a field where I could gather all of these different different threads together. I don't know. I guess my experience in anthropology, though I, I do consider myself you know, an anthropologist by training, I read more anthropology than anything else, but it's also been a field that's allowed me to engage with geography to engage with cultural studies um, and history. And so I suppose I've never entirely felt boxed in by anthropology in that sense, and simply by by virtue of the fact, perhaps it's as someone who's doing research on agriculture in the United States, of which at least when I started doing research, 
in the um, mid to late 2000s, there wasn't that much work done on American agriculture from anthropology that it always felt like, you know, you could draw threads and connections and really kind of play in any discipline you wanted. But maybe in a broader sense, I, I'm still personally committed to ethnography, um, both in the sense of enjoying doing ethnography, but also reflecting after writing a, a, a book for many years. I think the importance to ethnography for me is uh, the ways it's you know forced me to become committed to other people. Um, to me, the importance of ethnography is maybe not the just the experience of being there or immersing yourself in these systems, but of encountering and engaging people that are really unlike you, including in ways that might be uncomfortable, um, including with people that you might strenuously disagree with. But nonetheless, the, the process of writing ethnography and having a feeling of commitment to doing justice by these people in any ways you can is, is exhausting. But I also think it's really worthwhile. And I suppose that's why I remain committed to the discipline. Yeah, I totally agree, Alex. I think you've nailed it there. I mean, for, for me also, I think there's a kind of personal luxury in pursuing what fascinates you about the world. And, you know, in my career, I've sort of looked at really diverse things from, I was started off really fascinated with uh, storytelling and narrative and looked at how people told stories about where they live and how they belong in Botswana. And the storytelling aspect of anthropology, I think, is a, an extraordinarily powerful tool that, you know, allows really complex material, I think, to become engaging um, and comprehensible for, for all sorts of people. But as you mentioned, what I think is really unique and special about anthropology is the way it works across different scales and the way it looks at the connections and the complexity and the nuance in a particular topic. So, for example, if you're looking at, you know, like a dietary practice, you're not going to look just at the nutritional values. You're going to also look at the ecological and environmental implications of that dietary practice. You're going to look at the religious and cultural and heritage significance of that particular practice. You're going to look um, at the politics and, you know, at a global scale and, you know, regionally and so on and how that impacts what, what's happening. And I think it's those connections that really add depth and make anthropology so invaluable in the current moment where just about every way we turn, there's another wicked problem that seems intractable and impossible to solve. And I think looking at it you know, at these different scales and in a really data-driven way is what's so valuable. I think your, your emphasis on ethnography really I think speaks to all of us, particularly at the moment where we're seeing a really interesting time in terms of how knowledge is produced um, and shared and consumed and developed. I think the focus on data in anthropology and that, you know, it's not what we think people might think, it's what they really think because we've gone and we've asked them and we've asked all sorts of people, not just the people who produce, you know, the policy and the material, but we ask everybody at all levels. And I think that the ethical obligations that come from that and the, the representative nature of that, the politics of that is something that I really value as well. One of the things that both of you mentioned then was the opportunity to collaborate with others from, from different fields. I'm interested if you can talk us, Alex, through your collaboration with Sean Sprague, whose photographs are featured in Porkopolis, your, uh, your book, which came out... This year? <laughs> yeah, it oh. came out of May in 2020. Yeah. 2020, yeah, great. And that fabulous cover, which is such a striking image of uh, suspended hogs. Yeah. Sean Sprague was someone that I actually went to college with, someone who had become, who'd been trained as a fine arts photographer and had found some successes there, but was also to make ends meet around the time we were, we were talking around 2010 when I was doing the, the lion's share of my research. He was also having to do a lot of like advertising driven photography and so forth that wasn't really his passion. So I had been living in the town where I did my research for about 14 months or so at that time. It dawned on me that, you know, speaking with Sean, that he might be able to come down and, um, you know, offer different ways of depicting the place, different ways of engaging the place and also bringing the camera into the equation for, for anyone who knows um, much about industrial animal production, especially in the United States. The camera is an incredibly fraught object. Um, in some states in the, in the United States, there are what we call ag-gag laws that make it illegal to depict factory farms, industrialized animals on camera without permission from an owner, including in some states you can't even depict them from the road. These operations have seemingly more privacy and public rights than you or I do in the United States. So that just became an impetus to invite Sean down. And, and he came for a 10-day period 
in a sort of frantic run through of this region where he ended up shooting in a much more documentary style, which was effective and interesting, but he also felt was not his own creation, was not his own voice. So we ended up you know, going back to the drawing board and talking about this for a couple of years. And he came back in 2013 um, with a project that was uh, meant to engage from his perspective, the relationship between the constructed and the real in photography. He's not a documentary photographer by and large. He's a fine arts photographer, but in a lot of documentary photography, it can be considered a faux pas for various reasons to edit your photographs to and. Sean wanted to play with this, especially in a context of meat production, where, you know, there's there's constant discourses around transparency and, and invisibility and so forth. And Sean's idea was to try to produce the most highly detailed large-scale images that he could, which involved a method of, you know, standing in one place for two hours and taking over a thousand different frames and then digitally stitching them together, which... At one hand, you know, these, these images that are, of course, featured in small scale in the book, but are meant to be printed at a native resolution of six feet by eight feet. Um, they're at once some of the most detailed portraits you can get um, that are available in these sites like barns and slaughterhouses and biodiesel rendering facilities. But on the other hand, they are kind of fictions, right? They, um, the actual scene depicted in them is a composite of action unfolding over two hours. So in some senses, they break some rules of documentary photography, you know, and so that was a lot of fun to play with, and especially to learn from a fine arts photographer who sees the world in radically different ways than me, who's, um, while I'm sort of saying, oh, this particular scene or this particular machine or technology is really meaningful to me. He's like, no, that's, that's not a good angle, or that's not um, what I'm going for. So it was a challenge in some ways to allow Sean the space to realize his own, his own visions, his own engagements with photography as a practice. But at the same time, he could see that place and notice things in that, that region that I never could. So we ended up spending a whole summer together in 2013, and it was incredibly enriching. I was really reminded of um, Timothy Pacheret's books as I was kind of thinking through the the kind of optics of death and of, of meat production as well. Yeah, the, the comparison to Pacheret's um, ethnography of slaughter in every 12 seconds is is a good one. And, you know, Pacheret's working um, in a context in an urban slaughterhouse in Omaha that you know, is some senses is hidden, right? Um, it's very hard to to gain any kind of access to. It's very hard to to see, especially in the time where I think he's doing his research in 2007. These places are really locked down. They're, they're so locked down that even accessing or describing in detail them feels like a violation in some senses, or it feels like a transgression to even be able to depict these things in such detail. I thought it was a little bit different in the place where I worked, um, not in a city, in a kind of out-of-the-way rural town that's entirely organized around meat production. In some senses that, like, absolutely meat is sequestered. Um, very few people, as maybe we'll talk about in a bit, actually experience and see death of animals and so forth. Um, they are hidden sites for various reasons. But I wouldn't say that they're very sequestered for the people who live in this town, per se, where, like, most people work in the operations. Most people, either through touring or whatnot, have seen these operations. But nonetheless... It was interesting when I started talking with these companies, especially companies that I had a fairly long relationship with at that, at that point, about the very idea of bringing a camera into the operation. In the end, they were they were fine, but there was always a certain tension in the air around depiction on film that emerges from this the fraught history of expose photography of undercover break-ins and so forth that became an open question of how you actually depict these sites as mundane as everyday working relationships, as everyday sites of labor, when outside of like glossy hog industry magazine depictions of, you know, kind of workers embracing piglets or something like that, we actually have a fairly limited repertoire or sets of genres or tropes of how we should depict these operations, aside from images of undercover breakdowns and revelation and so forth. So it's it was a tricky process all around, I think, both for companies involved, but also for Sean, given the ways that the camera, especially with how these operations tend to be quite secret of the ways that the camera has oftentimes been marshaled as a means of evidence and truth and revelation and exposure. And so I think Sean had to work very hard to think about how to develop a style that didn't undercut that, that didn't undercut the, the important ways that undercover photography and so forth has 
revealed things that otherwise would not have been revealed and not been discussed publicly, at the same time as not necessarily reproducing those tropes, given that for most people working in these operations, this is mundane, normal, and part of everyday life. In addition to the photography, I mean, your role, Alex, was obviously one that was deeply embedded. Um, And Cameo, your work also has looked at politically fraught questions around industrial scale farming and meat production. I understand you've both worked with community members, but also private companies. So I'd, I'd really be interested to learn more about the process of gaining access and also really about representation and how you, you know, depicted these complex issues on the page and also whether you've had feedback, I guess, from people who you've written about particularly, but also those who might be critical of the industry. So over the last few years, I've been interviewing meat workers from actually an abattoir that closed down in in the mid-1980s. So in a sense, the fact that this is sort of past history enabled a level of access and transparency that I think kind of has been kind of unique. There's definitely this sense of what James Ferguson calls, you know, this sort of nostalgic workerism, right? This time of labour that is sort of past now and this kind of celebration of, of masculine working class men. So I think that was part of how I was able to kind of address issues which might be more difficult in a currently operating avatar on Meatworks kind of setting. But the second part of that research has also been to sort of start thinking about the relationship, uh, particularly in Australia, between domestic processing and the export of animals, the export of live animals from Australia to other countries, um, as Australia is one of the largest exporters, particularly of beef cattle in the world. Uh, And that was very different in the sense that, particularly because of the politicisation of live export as an industry worldwide, particularly in Australia over the last uh, eight to to ten years, that was a very different kind of level of access that I was able to gain, which was virtually none, in that it was very difficult to get people in that industry talking about that industry. And A lot of that has been around the really politically sensitive nature of that as an industry and the kind of the way in which those, I think those communities close down when they feel under pressure from the broader society. Two quite different contrasting experiences, I guess, there. But it's so important, right? I've been asked a number of times about live exporting and the phenomena of live exporting, of which to my knowledge, there isn't very much of out of the United States other than maybe with, with genetic animals. And I, until reading your work, I'm oftentimes just kind of forced to say, I, I don't understand. I don't understand, right? I don't actually understand the interior economic logic of live exporting, which seems so challenging to do, right? And so intensive that I've, you know, just from reading your work, I've come to understand and, you know, been surprised in some ways that like, in the search of, say, cheaper labor in Indonesia, you know, the lengths at which entire industries can be, boats can be remade or ships can be remade and so forth, um, all in, in search of, of cheaper labor is, is really quite remarkable. Perhaps this is different in Australia, but um, in some senses, it's the opposite case of mine, where with live exporting of animals, I've searched for it a few times and struggled to find information about, like, you know, lots of political critiques as to why about it, but struggled to find information about like what's its economic logic or why it exists. Whereas despite the ways that many American factory farms are deemed kind of scandalous, radically untransparent, there's actually an incredible amount of information about them online, right? Huge host of different theories and and walks throughs of their operations. In terms of the question of the politically fraught nature, it was initially quite challenging. You know, I moved to this community in the it cuts across the Great Plains in Midwest without really very many contacts. I'd spent some time looking at different companies and all across the United States trying to think about where to settle. And I stumbled across this town and became interested in some ways, but sort of moved there. And at first, not too many people were thrilled about that in the town you know this is it's fair to say that this industry obviously but also this town had been one that had been subjected to some critique in journalism um, that had hosted some visitors that had little positive to say about it or you know some people felt locals felt was dismissive or just kind of following a quick script so initially it was challenging to gain 
I guess for lack of a better word, trust, although I'm not sure I ever entirely gained trust in that sense, or I'm not sure that anyone 100% trusted me at the end. There was always um, a tension in relationships through interviewing or shadowing managers, or even in some cases, working in these operations. But for me, the, for lack of a better word, strategy, although it was probably more accidental than that, was just that I felt I needed to be very transparent and see what happens. I didn't think I would get access to these sites in in the sense of working there. I felt that this would probably be more um, a book about the town itself, about everyday life that might be interview driven. But given that at that time in around 2010, uh, most ethnographic work in American meatpacking had been done undercover, my assumption would be that I would not be granted access to work in these places. And in some cases, I wasn't, right? Like I was never granted access to work unsupervised in a slaughterhouse, for instance, even though I was allowed to do artificial insemination or pig delivery for another company. And so I just felt in this circumstance, what I was unwilling for a variety of reasons to do undercover ethnography, that I just had to be as transparent as I could, both being very honest about what I was doing there, even if sometimes how I discussed it sounded very abstract or very academic to people. You know, and when I initially started this project, one of my major questions is what is the factory in the factory farm? Or what is the industrial in the industrial pig? You know, interested not just in taking those terms as critical terms, as terms of derision as they tend to be used, but to actually say, like, what's it mean to industrialize an animal? Or how do these operations understand themselves within a broader history of? capitalism and industrialization and so forth. And in some senses, I expected that question would get me thrown out of the room with managers and some other higher ranking folks in these companies precisely because, you know, the factory farm is kind of a, a dirty word. And there was a bit of pushback around that. But on the other hand, through fate or luck, some managers sort of said, well, we're kind of interested in those questions too, obviously in very different ways. But, you know, they were taking all of their mid to senior level managers and training them in post-World War II Japanese manufacturing theory, like in Toyotism or lean production and so forth, and trying to think, what's it mean to take these philosophies and methods from industries like tire industries or automobile manufacturing and apply them onto, onto pigs? So in a sort of accident, asking that very question ended up getting me invited to these classes. And I, for instance, shared grant proposals and so forth with some senior figures in the company. And um, I don't always know why some people advocated for me to get research workplace access or not. But minimally, I think that my work was invested in a certain kind of political economy that recognizes the pressures and forces that drive people to make certain kinds of decisions in things like highly competitive global industries like meatpacking, and that the focus of the book wasn't going to be on, you know, telling a narrative of how this group of managers and so forth are perhaps like, you know, these agentive people that are just trying to exploit the town and exploit the people and are sort of greedily sucking up all the resources. That might be an inadvertent effect. We could, we could debate that. But minimally, I think senior managers, for better or for worse, knew that I was trying to write a study that centered capitalism, centered these companies within a broader history of capitalism and its pressures. And at least some of them felt comfortable with that, and especially perhaps comfortable with an ethnographer who will stay there for another 14 months or something like that, as opposed to a journalist who you know, might only be able to spare a, a couple weeks. And, you know, that did end up, those kinds of terms of access, those compounded with discussions with people in the field across classes did influence how I ended up approaching the writing and the representation in the site. You know, it was important for me to never individually critique anyone, right? no matter where they were positioned in these operations of, of, of recognizing partly based on my own ethnographic experiences of how they too were struggling within these forms. And so for me, it became a bit of an, an ethic of representation to um, keep attention on the broader 
forces that compel people rather than a more um, ethical or moralistically um, driven critique of individuals. Has that though, you know, I think that's, I really understand that sense of obligation in terms of your interlocutors and the people who have trusted you to work with them. I think what you do in the book is extraordinary in the sense of the nuance that it brings and the kind of the, the refusal to buy into any kind of moralistic dichotomies around, you know, this being invariably bad. I think you show the very human experiences of the workers, often in really difficult situations themselves in terms of um, often being recent migrants, having very few job opportunities, but showing an extraordinary compassion towards these animals that are invariably going to be killed um, for meat. And yet the care that's shown, especially to the runts, you talk a lot about the runts, the piglets who are are weak and vulnerable, um, the huge amount of emotion and care invested in those individuals. And I was actually talking uh, to somebody about this. I was explaining that about your work and they found that really frustrating. They, They wanted a kind of more vociferous critique of, you know, an industry that obviously is hugely problematic. And so I'm just wondering, you know, how in terms of the reception of the work, whether there has been, you know, frustration with, I guess, the sympathy that you show towards your informants. Yeah, I haven't received too much direct pushback on these points from people who have read the book. But, you know, it's it's fraught territory. And I knew that as I was writing, you know, as, as I say in the book, I expected to encounter mostly workers who are kind of desensitized to this process that dealt with 10,000 pigs in a given day that had come to kind of just see pigs as widgets. And I grant there might have been some of that. I might have met some people like that, but it just didn't match my experiences in this industry. Instead, um, as I detail, I met a lot of people who were working kind of tirelessly to provide as good of the conditions of life for these pigs as they could, despite being in what I consider, and I think many workers themselves considered, to be kind of um, horrendous conditions. And I just had to struggle as an ethnographer with the fact that everyone I would meet, like across classes, from entry-level workers to, say, um, some mid-to-senior level managers who entered this industry not entirely over conditions of their own choosing, that many of them were trying really hard to do their best from their very particular vantage point, whether it's managers trying to realize a more ethical labor process, both in relation to animals and workers than some other companies that they had previously worked in, or workers like the the person you mentioned tending to, to run hogs who, you know, probably did have quite a few critiques of this place, but nonetheless was in there working and wanted to, as I understood it, wanted to do the best work that she could in these conditions. And so while I can totally accept a certain kind of critique that there's a risk here, especially in a broader meat industry context, whereby meat lobbying organizations and so forth can always twist our words, I would push back and ask, what's actually the more damning critique here? What's the the more incisive critique? Is it the straightforward narrative of heroes and villains, a straightforward narrative that's just of greedy or uncaring people creating these situations? Or is it a matter of all of these different people from many different walks of life trying to do the best that they can, but the situation and the result is still, for me and for a great many others, quite horrifying. And indeed, that oftentimes even acts of trying to work really hard to care for animals and so forth can have negative effects in terms of, say, normalizing the the genetics that the industry uses and allowing the system to go in. So to me, it is a much more incisive critique to show a whole range of people trying to do their very best, but nonetheless, the outcome being one that we would not feel comfortable about. They're still deeply problematic. And that, to me, pushes us to make broader structural interventions and critiques, whether those, the, that's about policy or regulation or about opening conversations about whether this system can ultimately be reformed and instead whether we need to think about its abolition. I think that brings us to some questions around scale, which is something that's a really important uh, theme in both of your sets of work. I mean, Katie, your work with rare breeds is sort of 
you know, in a sense at the opposite end from where Alex's work is situated in the kind of industrial setting. Um, I wonder if you can talk us through, Katie, a little bit about the work that you've been doing sort of around intimacies and kinship with the rare breed farmers. Yeah, sure. I think scale is really key to, well, small scale farmers, <laughs> obviously in the name, uh, <laughs> to how they conceive ethically of their their practices. And I think the, the intimacy, as you say, I think that's a really key word here, is something that makes I think the intimacy is something that really on a day-to-day -day level is where the pleasure in farming um, often emerges for the heritage breed producers that I've been working with. And it's also, I think, fits into their ethics of how it can be, I guess, defensible to raise animals for meat. So I think um, there's a sense of, and I think this speaks to a lot of the work in the multi-species literature. Obviously, Donna Haraway has been really influential in this regard in looking at um, accountability and responsibility and how we, you know, through intimate engagements with animals, um, there, there is a sense of, shared suffering and uh, a shared sort of reciprocal engagement in, in a life and death cycle. So the work I've been doing has been responding to a global issue in the loss of genetic diversity in livestock where with the um, industrialization of agriculture, a word that Alex can no doubt unpack in sophisticated ways, there has been a real focus on the, the you know, very strong selective breeding for particular productive traits um, in various species, whether that be for, for milk, for fast growth and, and so on. And so with the focus on you know, profitability and, and the diminishing profit margins around meat production, there has been a real focus on the most prolific bloodlines being uh, commercialised and distributed and disseminated across the globe. And so we're seeing an ever-diminishing pool of not only breeds but also bloodlines, which um, the farmers I'm working with are really pushing back against. They're trying to ensure breed diversity through raising um, various heritage and rare breeds across Australia. And I think it's, it's very interesting actually to think about the intersections of ecology and ethics and so on in terms of scale, because with a lot of heritage breeds, they are suited, they've been adapted over millennia to being raised in pastured systems where they don't tend, you know, the increasing scale is often not viable. You know, a lot of the, the pigs, for example, pastured pigs aren't able to be raised in sheds and so on. And so there's this kind of idea amongst heritage breeders that because of their adaptations to pastured systems, you're going to always have a, a cap on the kind of scale that you're going to achieve because you're using that extensive grazing approach. So it's, it's quite interesting how that um, idea of scale really intersects with ideas around ethics and ecological limits. And certainly uh, the US, in comparison to Australia, the US has reached a sort of level of industrialization that's quite unique, I think. Would you say, Alex? Yeah, I do think that the United States is fairly unique globally in terms of industrial animal production, but it's unique in sort of curious ways. And I think these ways have actually been revealed in the wake of COVID-19 in ways that I didn't even anticipate. Um, and I, I've been sort of learning just how different the United States is in the wake of how COVID-19's moved through most packing houses around the world, but none quite with the force of the United States. And, you know, certainly in terms of scale, in terms of sheer animals produced per company or per barn or per slaughterhouse per year, the United States is an outlier. It's just far bigger than most others, the exception perhaps of Denmark and a couple rising companies in China. But it's also unique in that it's a fairly low technology approach to industrializing scale. So when I've been looking at videos and images emerging out of slaughterhouses, say in Denmark, or other parts of Europe over the past few months, I've actually been struck about how little I recognize those packing operations, which tend to be quite a bit more mechanized, not fully automated by any means. They still use lots and lots of labor, but they use a great deal more machines, whereas in the United States plants, it's kind of like thousands of people working a shift. And that, you know, tells us something about the United States. It tells us about its racial politics, its politics of migration, and its kind of its efforts to generate illegality and its cheap labor. And one of the things that kind of surprised me when I was doing my research, and you know, has only 
continually surprised me in the years since was just how much labor is actually involved in this process, clearly within slaughterhouses, but also with, you know, 2000 people working in breeding barns, in, in growing barns, and so on and so forth. What potentially distinguishes the United States as a, as a global animal producer is not only its outlandish scale and concentration and density, but also in a sense, its intimacy, if we want to use that, that word. The fact that this is not a matter of just locking pigs in a barn and having them kind of grow unsupervised, but instead this specific project that American corporations are trying to achieve which is to to produce highly uniform, standardized meat, actually requires a great deal of laboring intervention and forms of worker-pig intimacy that probably aren't the same kinds of intimacy that Katie's talking about, right? Intimacies with whole animals, with entire breeds or bloodlines. And instead, what what I found in my research was that there was um, intense worker knowledge and intimacy with pigs but there was also a concurrent division of labor, which meant that like, if someone who was working in artificial insemination, they would only work in artificial insemination. Or if someone was working and delivering piglets, that's all they would do. And they would perhaps never encounter a grown hog or certainly never encounter a slaughtered meat hog, which um, meant that you know some people I worked with had radical, perhaps like historically unprecedented knowledge of one dimension of pigs, like a radical knowledge of knowing pigs from day one to day 22, when you have delivered, say, 400,000 of them over your lifetime. But then conversely, um, not knowing too much about the nature of hogs outside of that stage. So, you know, when I worked in artificial insemination, I would describe what we were doing as intimate. We would have to imitate the mating behaviors of boars. We would have to rub sows in particular ways that imitate boars mounting. We would have to sit on them to have them draw in semen. But after you know a couple months of doing this, I kind of left these operations without any surety that I actually emerged with positive knowledge of these animals, that I actually knew much more about the nature of sows or pigs as when I went in. What instead I learned was a kind of radical familiarity with how sows express breeding reproductive instincts when they are locked in confinement in gestation crates. I mean, it just sounds so intense in that regard. You know, obviously being involved in the artificial insemination was a very specific window, but more broadly, I think your book is so evocative in depicting the pungency of the smell and the intensity of the sound of pig squealing. I mean, just on a personal level, that must have been extraordinarily tough. I mean, you obviously had such diverse roles in your fieldwork, and I think obviously the time you devoted also was very extensive. This was a really comprehensive examination of this industry. So I'd love to hear more about the particular roles you took on in the fieldwork and and how you managed to reconcile you know, doing some of these complex tasks with your own values and feelings and how you just kept going from day to day when it just did sound just so intense. Well, you know, as I said before, you know, one of my major questions was just what is the factory and the factory farmer? What's it mean to industrialize a pig and, you know, especially industrialize a hog in the way that the companies I studied were doing, which is they were advertising themselves as one of the first to achieve full vertical integration, right? Which meant that they'd merged what were considered historically distinct industries of boar studs for semen or um, sow breeding farms or growing farms or slaughterhouses, and then a whole host of post-kill processing facilities. And in some senses, this company was trying to say that this, you know, resulted in a consequentially different approach to, to making meat itself, the very object of production changes. But in practice, it meant that people from across these different work sites, right, like someone who um, spends their day extracting semen from boars versus someone who spends their entire day making one cut in the left hand 10,000 times in eight to 10 hours actually have radically different experiences of what it means to mass produce life and death, right? They have in very different material sites. And so one of my, what emerged as one of my goals was just simply to gain as many different vantage points onto this very long and very distinct process of trying to 
raise seven million pigs a year across across every stage of the being and then kill and process their bodies in, in ever finer ways. And so, you know, I, I did a, a range of, of different activities, obviously spending a lot of time in this company town that's, you know, disproportionately organized and controlled by these corporations, getting a, a sense of what everyday life is like in a kind of throwback industrial company town in the midst of a ostensibly post-industrial United States, doing lots of interviews with people from across production classes, becoming involved in various town clubs, social life, various chambers of commerce programs. But then I also spent off and on, not you know every single day, but off and on spent about nine months total shadowing senior managers in some of their routine workday activities, getting a sense of how they understood the broader nature of mass-producing meat. I worked myself in artificial insemination and piglet delivery. I spent about eight months taking manufacturing theory classes with senior managers. And then I spent um, a fair amount of time just kind of shadowing or hanging out in a series of facilities that were trying to realize new values out of the pig's carcass, whether that meant converting all of the fat into biodiesel or taking all of the front leg bones for a ramen soup base or developing new kinds of pet food additives. And for me, this was about trying to gain distinct vantage points on the system that's supposed to be unified, right? The whole point of vertical integration is to unify all of these distinct industries. But yet in practice, people had very different senses about what the broader project was about, depending on where and the stage of the pig's life and death cycle they were located. I don't know. When I get the question of, you know, how did I feel doing some of this work, it, it sometimes makes me feel bad because I, I don't want to say that I, I, I felt nothing or I, I felt no compassion. Um, it was some of these sites were kind of shocking at first, you know, the overwhelming scent of feces, the heat of, you know, thousands of large hog bodies in breeding barns, touching animals all day, the dust. But at the same time, you know, at that point, before I ever started working in these operations or setting foot in these barns, I'd already been in the town quite a bit. Um, It was already somewhat normalized. And all of this work is pretty repetitious. And that can make it pretty easy to, to normalize such that you're just kind of doing the work. Perhaps primed by some other writing, I maybe expected to be more overwhelmed by some of it. And so the process of doing this, this kind of work or entering these sites didn't necessarily feel repulsive or transgressive and so forth at the time. It's just, you know, it's how the vast majority of people in this town work. And in a broader sense, especially in the United States, where there are very few alternatives to this, especially in pork and chickens, um, this is in many ways the ways for better and probably for worse that meat is made. And so part of it, I, you know, I didn't necessarily feel sentiments of disgust or sentiments of being drained by these processes, but it was also maybe important for me not to. This was work I was going to be doing for a short time. It wasn't something that I was going to be doing for my whole life. And, you know, I I felt it was important not to experience it as someone from a very different walk of life than me experiences these sites, but nonetheless, not to begin with, you know, an overarching sense of horror to recognize that this is not for a lot of people, a site of transgression or something sensational. But in fact, it's a mundane way that people make their livelihood. And that's both what it felt like to me and kind of what I felt was important to maintain as an affect and ethic in these sites. That reminds me so much, Alex, of an interview I did earlier this year with a man who worked in the meatworks that I've been doing this sort of historical ethnography of. He had the role of the knocker, which is um, probably Alex, I think, talks about this in his book as well. So uh, he's the first person on the line who stuns the, in this case, cattle as they come into the abattoir. And when this man first started that role, that job, that was done with a sledgehammer. Uh, So every day for about 15 years before um, it moved on to a bolt-action rifle, he by hand manually hit about 400 head of cattle in the head every day uh, as a job. And when I interviewed him, I was just incredibly struck by uh, not only the physical labour of that as a job, but what for me felt like a very sort of dystopic, terrible 
kind of position to have. And I put this to him by saying, you know, how did that make you feel? And he said, well, it's a job. It was a job. And I said, did it make you feel, did you feel traumatised by it? He said, no, it's just a job. And I think that posed a really interesting kind of conundrum to someone like me because we go in, of course, with our own expectations of what these kinds of roles mean to different people in different parts of their life. And I think there's a real challenge there for some of us to try and with empathy kind of come to the responses that our interlocutors give to these kinds of questions. Yeah, that that resonates quite a bit. You know, I I would oftentimes ask people, you know, people who maybe not a knocker, but, you know, people who who work on the kill floor for many years or who, you know, spend all of their days trying to tend to very fragile and sick animals, you know, what they think about these operations or what are the, the broader reflections on life and death. And I was actually always surprised by how difficult it was to elicit reflections from folks on that level. You know, this perhaps could be my own ethnographic failings, right? That, you know, people perhaps didn't trust me enough to to reflect on how this made them feel or what they thought about the ethics of these various processes. But on the other hand, you know, especially amongst migrant workers whose whose main experiences of working in the United States were in these industrialized operations, oftentimes the response was, this is just how they do things here, right? That's it. Like asking a friend of mine that I worked with, who was originally from a small Quiche-speaking village in Guatemala and raised some chickens. Indeed, someone who sometimes seemed to be a bit of a critic of the operations themselves, you know, asking what she thought about pigs' lives in these operations and just sort of saying, that's how they do things here right? That's just how it is in this country. And um, if I had to give a a phrase to the affect that I encountered across my research, like a constant refrain, if I had to put it in one single phrase, it would probably be something like it is what it is. Mm, that's interesting. A lot of the hunters and farmers I've worked with, I've been really interested in the complexity of their philosophical understandings and the ethical justification of why killing is legitimate. And I would say probably that the most common answer is often around biology. So there's this kind of understanding of life as invariably coming to an end and about, you know, some things living um, on the basis of others' deaths and that goes across plants and animals broadly. But, yeah, that's really interesting that there is that refusal to engage with those kinds of ideas. It's a really different different context. Yeah. I was thinking about that when I was reading your work on feral meat on hunting and all of these, you know, quite profound reflections that people have on the the ethics of what they do, sometimes as justifications and sometimes broader philosophies of of living well and with non-human beings on this planet. You know, I just simply experienced a lot less of that. Partly, I mean, I think it's that it is what it is ethic, this sort of feeling perhaps wrongly, of having very little control over these operations, no matter where one stands. Obviously, it's not hard to understand an entry-level meatpacking worker is having very little control, but even some senior managers feeling that they're driven by an industry with very low profit margins um, to make certain calls that everyone at some point would sort of say it is what it is, kind of presenting themselves as spectators to these operations, despite the fact that they're a very integral organizational part and driver of it. And you know, sometimes I tried to turn that into a research question that didn't always get there. Like, what's it mean to, to feel like these processes are inevitable? What's it mean to feel the sort of affect that if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it, that I'm a, a minor player in this? But I think in a broader sense, it's not just a question of feeling a lack of agency in a broader system. I think the issue is also that most of the folks that I worked with perhaps didn't experience something like life and death, as, as odd as that sounds. But, you know, if we, we read works like Timothy Potrot's Every 12 Seconds, we can see that actually very few people see the process of killing animals. And unlike, say, in the case of the knocker with a sledgehammer that you gave cameo, I've stood on the catwalk of a slaughterhouse 
and just kind of watched the process of the kill floor. And it's actually very difficult to even tell when it is an animal dies, right? In these large operations, animals are put into carbon dioxide chambers where they're rendered unconscious, limp, not moving. And then someone kind of slits the throat or the arteries and they bleed out without very much movement such that it becomes actually difficult to detect a moment when an animal dies. And indeed, perhaps you had a more tactile relationship with death, ironically, in the growing phases whereby mosters are, are engaged with some of the most sickly or ailing pigs there are trying to you know, keep them going for another days relative to the slaughterhouse where there's maybe one person making that slit of the throat and the vast majority of workers are either shielded from that process spatially or um, working down somewhere on the line where they're either working with a carcass, an eviscerated carcass, or just with meat. And even again, on the, the live side, on the growing side, on the breeding side, you know, people had really intimate engagements with one stage of the hog life, but we're kind of insulated from maybe forming attachments or, or, or gaining knowledge of, of hogs themselves, hogs more in general, hogs across their life phases, such that in an odd sort of way, I think people in these places that are from the outside about mass producing life and death in the slaughterhouse don't experience very much death and in the growing side or in the sensible live side, you know, come to not have relationships with the pig as a whole and experience it growing, changing and coming into being, but instead have, you know, repetitive engagements with one age grade or one physiological or biological process. So that's interesting. I think it's come back to scale again to some extent. And I've been thinking a lot about scale. And obviously with the pandemic, it's really laid bare the risks in the US meat supply chains, highly vertically integrated model. And, you know, obviously this has made me think a lot about globalisation and versus local systems. And certainly here in Australia, there's been an absolute flood of interest in backyard chicken keeping as well as veggie gardening, all that sort of thing. So I think the pandemic has been really interesting in thinking through food chains. And I'm really interested to know whether you think that the disruptions created by COVID will have a lasting impact on these industries. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a tough question. You know, I certainly think it's politicised these industries in a way that they weren't before. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention before COVID-19 to the conditions of animals, but oftentimes we haven't heard too much about workers. And for many of us doing research in these meatpacking towns for a while now, there's been fairly limited political activity in them, limited unionizing activity, limited labor agitation. That's all changed quite a bit around the pandemic. You know, at this moment, we have, say, children of Smithfield Foods workers protesting in parking lots saying that, you know, their parents should not have to risk their lives for meat, right, or not have to risk their lives for a job. That would have been, to me, actually quite unimaginable when I was doing my field work. I think it's hard to say what's going to be the long-lasting fallout or disruption in meatpacking in the United States in the wake of COVID-19. Partly because back in April and May, I and the great many people within the industry seemed to feel that this was going to be its Achilles heel, right? This was, as I sort of said before, one of the things that distinguishes the United States in its meatpacking is not only its scale, but its, you know, reliance on human labor. You know, in the initial emergence of COVID-19, a lot of industry commentators themselves were saying that this was going to be the downfall of the system, that to encourage social distancing, plants were either going to have to shut down or they would have to retreat, as it were, to a more 1970s model involving less processing and cutting of animals' bodies, more um, a model of, say, slaughtering, eviscerating and splitting an animal into sides and shipping the sides to urban butchers in a less concentrated value chain. But then you know, the Donald Trump administration signed the Defense Production Act and, you know, ways that should, I hope, will be remembered as a profound tragedy. Workers were sent in and while there was a decrease in capacity for some period, right now as I speak in November, most of these plants, which I think remain quite risky, 
are operating more or less at full capacity. More than 40,000 meatpacking workers have been directly sickened, and at least 200 have died in the country. What I think I've learned from this as someone who really expected that this was going to disrupt the industry is that we shouldn't wait necessarily or, or expect that an external event is necessarily going to change this industry, whether it's a certain pig disease, whether it's increased oil prices, which would be very damaging to these operations that are set up around export, or whether it's a pandemic. I think we've learned in quite horrifying ways that these industries will do everything they can to continue and blast right through the crisis. And indeed, in the United States with chicken, what we've actually seen is attempts to increase the speed of disassembly lines, um, not slow them down in the wake of this. So at least what I think I've, I've learned from this is that without something like a political force, without workers that are highly organized, without people from across urban and, and rural regions that are willing to intervene without um, more political pressure at the level of legislatures and so forth. I don't think a single event like this is necessarily going to disrupt this industry. I think it can create openings for transformation, but that has to be joined with political action and will. It's been wonderful talking with both of you today. I've learned so much and it's been an absolute pleasure to hear more about your work. I want to finish up by asking each of you what's next on your research and uh, your journeys in anthropology. Katie, I'll start with you. Well, I'm hoping very much that I can actually get into the field. So I started this project on rare and heritage bred livestock this year and I was had tickets booked and was all set to head east to Victoria, Tassie, Queensland and New South Wales to do a lot of on-farm fieldwork which of course was stymied at the 11th hour by that pandemic um, situation. And so I'm really hoping to have a lot of time in the field. I'm hoping that the internal borders will open up and they'll release us West Australians. And I mean, conceptually, there's so much that I want to do with this project. There's just, I think, as you guys will certainly share an enthusiasm for the incredible complexity and richness of human-animal relations and you know it's such a dynamic time I think in that regard I think culturally there's all sorts of shifts happening as well as ecologically economically and so on so conceptually I'm really interested in looking at ideas around domestication further extinction temporality the gendering of animals and farming practice so lots more to do on this project before I start thinking about the next one. I'm similarly kind of on hold with ethnographic projects at the moment but I am developing a project in Chicago that kind of takes off from where Porkopolis ends. Porkopolis ends with a call for a more positive politics of deindustrialization. A deindustrialization that doesn't just end with the, the abandonment and ostracization of working people. And, and furthermore, recognizes that industrialization is not going to just go away on its own, right? It's not going to just evolve out of, of capitalism that, you know, even if we say we're in a deindustrialized United States, there are still many places that are either beset by ongoing processes of industrialization or, or dealing with the wreckage and history of industrialization. And so I'm trying to develop a project in Chicago at the moment that is an ethnography of the Union stockyards, the original places of mass slaughter that in some senses predate American industrialism as we know it, but it's an ethnography of the stockyards that begins in 1971, the year of their ostensible closure, and looks at about 16 or 17 different sites in the city where people are trying to kind of remake, redeem, transform, or totally eradicate the traces of the meatpacking industry in the city. And so I'm looking at those different sites to try to develop a different vocabulary, perhaps a more positive vocabulary of what radical deindustrialization might mean, whether it's people trying to remediate a still highly polluted creek or people that are trying to fashion new economies and production processes out of like the abandoned shell of a 40,000 square foot pork slaughterhouse. At this moment, amidst a sense of who knows when I'll be able to do in-person research again. I'm working with a group of anthropologists, perhaps as many as 20, to try to imagine a massively collaborative project that would potentially remake Studs Terkel's working from the 1970s, his book of oral histories on what people do all day and what they think about what they do all day. 
it was this you know, classic volume in the United States of 500 pages of some 100 different oral history interviews. But the caveat would be that the book is going to be called Unworking, and it will be about people's efforts to try to live a life outside of labor or to live uh, a life at least that doesn't revolve around labor or to work in different ways. And this is partially a product of being inspired by a lot of post-work critique and literature and theory that argues that one of the major tasks today is to critique the ways we not only have to work to live, but oftentimes seem quite willing to, to live to work, but to try to give it some lived texture and, and some grounding in people's everyday lives and, and mundane efforts. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. This episode of Conversations in Anthropology was recorded and produced by Cameo Deli on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge their elders, past, present, and emerging. The episode was edited by Matt Barlow and David Border-Giles, and Conversations in Anthropology is created by Matt, David, Maithili Maher, Cameo Deli, and myself, Timothy Neal. The podcast is supported by the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter, we're at AnthroConvo, and don't forget to subscribe to catch future episodes. <laughs>